Anyways, let me start out by saying this. Last Christmas, Laura, my wife's family, uh, lives up in St. Louis. And on the, we were trying to come home. We had a great time with, our, with, her, with her parents. But if many of you know, around Christmas last year, there was this massive snowstorm that kind of came through North Texas and hit Oklahoma. And we were like, oh, man, we do not want to be driving through that uh, with three kids and get stuck on the highway somewhere and have to spend the night you know, on Highway 35. So we waited a couple of days and waited for that snowstorm to kind of move east and into some more warmer temperatures. Well, we got up the next morning. The car was packed. It was about 5.30 in the morning. We hit the Krispy Kreme donuts. Um, everybody needs Krispy Kremes, as you clearly know from being around RUF a little bit. And as we were pulling onto the interstate, Interstate 44, leaving St. Louis, we noticed that the cars were beginning to back up and turn around. And, uh, well, I had checked my weather report. I knew that we were good to go, so I don't know what was going on. Well, you know what happened? All that snow had turned into rain, which made the rivers rise, and it blocked out the highway there for us to get out of town. So we were stuck. And we hurriedly looked for other routes. I eventually called the Missouri Department of Transportation, and I said, I need a way to Texas. Get me out of this blasted state. And... She said, she says, well, there is a way, there is a way, and you're going to get home, but it's going to be through back roads and stoplights. It'll put you into Little Rock, and from there, you should be fine. Well, I talked to Laura, and I said, uh, this is basically going to make our trip of 12 hours into one of about 15. Are you sure you want to do it with our small bladders on board and our short attention spans? And, uh, and, I, and, I, and she said, there's no way. I'm glad we should do this because if not, it's just going to get worse here. Let's, let's go. And I love this. Love about But here was the message. The message was clear. I was going to get home, but I was going to have to take another way. I was going to get home, but it was not going to be the way that I expected. And y'all, why in the world would I start out a story tonight by telling you uh, talking about Romans 4 by telling you that you're going to have to look for another way. Well, it's very simple. Paul tonight wants to show you, believe it or not, that if you want to get home, if you want to find your true rest, if you want to know your true delight, you will have to go another way. You will have to find another way home. What do I mean? Well, his readers had mistakenly thought for a long, long time that the way to be right with God, the way to be home, was by observing and be obedient to the law, or the Torah more specifically. And Paul had told them, as we have seen every week, he told them even from that self-same law that they were trusting in, that such a way to God was destined to fail. They would have to go another way. And what is Paul's way? Well, it is an old way. It's one testified to in the prophets and in the law. And the only way that everyone, anyone is ever saved. And it's what we'll look at tonight. It is the way of faith. You see, Paul tells us very simply that trusting in our own good works, our own good behavior, will only get us good dead. That's what he tells us. That's all it will ever get us. In other words, the default assumption of all of our hearts, is that my good behavior is the thing that will get me home with God. And here the scriptures stand as a reminder and as a picture saying there is another way. Why is this so important? A couple of reasons. One, 
If you ever have been someone that has tried to measure up for God, but no, you can't. If you've ever been someone who is spiritually exhausted because you feel like you have to keep God uh, pleased with you by your moral performance, if you're someone open to considering an utterly unique way to God that the world cannot give you, then Romans 4 is for you tonight. You see, Paul is going to tell us tonight, like he did last week, that there is a righteousness, a right standing that God gives to us. It is not earned, it is given. It is not achieved, rather, it is received. And put simply, the way that we get the righteousness that Paul says everyone must have to see God is by faith. Faith. This is what we want to look at and consider tonight. So we're going to look at it underneath three headings. Faith's contrast, faith's object, and lastly, faith's promise. Faith's contrast, object, and promise. And by observing these three things, y'all listen to me, you can get home. You can get home. Tonight, you can get home. Let's take a look at faith's contrast, this idea here that we see in these first five verses. The first thing that Paul tells us is that faith is contrasted with something. Specifically, he tells us that it's contrasted with works. It's contrasted with works. How does he do it? Well, he goes back and looks at an Old Testament hero, this father of the Jewish faith, this man known as Abram turned Abraham. You see, back in the Old Testament, in Genesis 12 to 17, God came to Abraham and promised Abraham that he would use him and his family to be the family that God would bring about the redemption of all peoples on the face of the earth. But now, as we learned in freshman Bible study yesterday, if you were there, Abraham is about 99 years old. And his wife Sarai, who would become known as Sarah, is knocking on 90 years old. And God comes to them and says, you're going to have a child. Sarah laughs at God because she's like, I don't know if you know about a little thing about human physiology here, God, but I'm 90 years old. I'm not exactly of childbearing years. And my hubby here, as he's, you know, in disbelief as well, he's 99 years old. And I don't know if you know this, God, 99-year-old men, 90-year-old women don't make babies. It's exactly what he's getting at. But our God is in the business of bringing life out of barrenness, life out of deadness. And that's exactly what he does in Abraham's life. Nevertheless, in spite of these odds that they were faced with, instead of looking at their circumstances, Abraham, the text tells us, trusted and believed that God could and would do this despite their old age. And in fact, he did. Fast forward now back in Romans 4. Paul tells us that the way Abraham, the way that Abraham's belief, the thing that God counted as righteousness to him, was not through his good behavior whatsoever. It was that Abraham heard God's promise and he had faith. He believed in what God said. And that by trusting in God, 
God credited, He considered that trust as righteousness for Abraham before God. Y'all, this is so important because Paul is saying that from the beginning, always and only, has relationship with God been accessed not through works, but through faith. This is the contrast that he wants you to see. Now listen, I think it would be really easy to sort of pull up the reins and to stop there, but we need to go deeper because I want you to see how important faith is. If it is the access point for, ex- for receiving all that God has done for us, we really need to understand what it's about, especially in a culture that is so confused about what faith, especially saving faith, is all about. Y'all, I hate to be so crass about it, but if Christ and all His blessings are seen as like a milkshake, all the goodness, right? I don't know what your favorite milkshake is. Mine's chocolate banana with a little bit of malt in it, okay? Um, if, if that is Christ, faith is the straw that we access the goodness by. Does that make sense? It's the way that we get in to all that Christ has done for us. We need to be able to see that without faith, it is impossible to access all that Christ has done for it. So what is faith? What is it? Well, in one sense, it's quite simple. Faith is trust. It's simply trusting. But yet, in another sense, it's very hard to describe. You see, faith is more than intellectual assent. It's more than saying that I believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It involves this will component, too, this deep heart commitment. John Stott was a writer, and he once said that faith is a reasoning trust. This is true because faith is always thoughtful and thinks out the thing in which it trusts. And lastly, because saving faith is opposed to earning, it can, not, it can be characterized as something that receives, something that rests. It's like open hands, open hands receiving. This is where I wanted to show you the picture of our baby, uh, Iris. She's pictured there with her shirt off, food is all around her face. She's there with her sippy cup. This image is in your, in your mind now. Three times a day, she demonstrates to us what faith is all about. She knows that mama and dada will absolutely give her what she needs, her food. She can't get her own crackers. She cannot make her own PB&Js or pour her own milk in her sippy cup. But every night, she receives. She comes open-handed. She faiths in the old sense of the word in us that we will give her what she needs. And in much the same way, this is exactly what Abraham did. He trusted that God would do what he said he would do. Now I want to say a few things about what faith is not. What faith is not, because it's very important. I want you to see that our culture has other ideas about what faith is that have nothing to do whatsoever with what the Bible is talking about when it talks about faith. First, The Bible never teaches the idea of blind faith. Has anybody ever heard that phrase? Blind faith? It's just like a leap in the dark. And that's what Christianity is all about. In other words, it's sort of like this. Check your brain at the door and become a Christian. Be an idiot. Don't reason out the implications of Christianity and become a Christian. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. 
It's certainly not Christianity. No, Christianity is a thinking faith. Almost like it's this idea that like if you're a Christian, you have to be an idiot. And the point is that's not the case at all. Look, I know some of you guys are studying the hard sciences, and this is very much a part of the debate that like science and faith are in opposition with one another. And I want to tell you someone who has their BS in biology that that's not the case at all. Okay, And in fact, some of the greatest scientists, the greatest minds, let me just run down a list. If you've ever heard the name Newton, Sir Isaac Newton. If you've ever heard the name Johannes Kepler, Kepler's Law. If you've ever heard of a man named Michael Faraday, he made major advances in the fields of electromagnetism. If you've ever heard of uh, Boyle, Boyle's Law. These were folks that were all Christians. And they pursued their faith, their, their science because they believed that there was a God who made an ordered world that was observable, and that because it was observable, they went into the, into the science to try to know more about that field. Science and faith, opposition, is not the only model out there. First, that's the first one. Secondly, um, I want you to see this, that many of you will focus your time, y'all, in college, in your faith, on silly unsubstantial and unhelpful things. And I just want to say this, do you have avenues where you can feed on deep spiritual meat, a substance that will help you navigate through the real choppy waters of life? Do you have a church, for example, that is helping you in this way? If not, I urge you to go to one, please. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says this about Christianity. Christianity of false is of no importance. Let me say that again. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. Here's the deal. Either a dead man walked out of a grave or he didn't. And if he did... The only response is for you to bow down to him and worship him because nobody ever else has done that. And if he didn't, let's go home. Let's shut the whole operation down and call it a day because we're frauds. Either this really happened or it didn't. Do you have a place for you to explore that? Or are you worried about trivial things? Because it's the resurrection, a dead man walking out of a grave that will give ballast and depth to your faith that you will need for the hard seasons of life. Does that make sense? The last thing I want to say is this, thirdly, that faith does not mean the absence of doubt or uncertainty. Say that again. Faith, biblical faith, does not mean the absence of all doubt or uncertainty. I know I'm taking a lot on this first point, but we have to drive it home. Do you all know in Matthew chapter 28... Jesus has died, he's rose again from the grave, and he's about to ascend to his Father. He's standing on the mountain there, about to ascend. And Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, tells us this. You can write it down and read it later. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Listen to verse 17. And when they, the disciples, that is, those who were with him, those that knew him, those that saw him die, those that are now seeing him walking out of the grave. They're standing, he is standing right before him. It says this, when they saw him, they worshipped him. But, the Bible says this, some doubted. 
I don't know about you, but if you saw a dead man walk out of a grave standing in front of you, would you doubt? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I would do. But I'm comforted by the fact that there are disciples who see the risen Jesus right in front of them, and they're still wrestling with the implications of that. Well, I'll tell you this. Y'all, do you know that Jesus is tender with your doubts? He knows how to nourish that. He knows how to feed that. He knows how to grow belief in you. That this is one of the implications of what our Savior does for us. Is that He meets us where we're at. Now listen, I just want to say this, and I'm going to move on. If you're someone who wrestles with doubt and struggles with it, I just want to say join the club. I would love to buy you a cup of coffee and talk about whatever questions that you have. And if you have friends that you would like to do that with, let's all, the three of us, the four of us, go out and talk about some of these things. Because I think it is vital right now in this season of your life that you begin to find answers to not trite questions, but to deep questions that really matter. That is why I'm paid millions of dollars a year to come to the TCU and to help you think through these questions. Make good use of me. Make good use of your interns as well. We're moving on. Not only faith's contrast, secondly, faith's object, perhaps the most important, faith's object. As many of you know, we're in the middle of a college football season, and a scene that you will see played out over and over again this time of year is as follows. Team A makes an unbelievable comeback during the second half. Maybe they're down 21-3 to halftime, and then they make a 38-point run to win the game. And then the announcer catches a star player after the game, and having asked them, how do they do it? The player responds something like this. You know, we just had, what? Faith that we would win. Right? Interesting. Because isn't he saying that the thing that secured their victory was this internal sense of believing in yourself? And Paul wants to show you that this is not what biblical faith is at all. That's what it, not at all. You'll notice several times in verse 3, 20, 21, and 24, the thing or the object in which Abraham believes. Put simply, unlike our athlete who looks to his internal sense of his own self-confidence, Abraham looks outside of himself to God. And this is the key ingredient of what saving faith really is. Faith always has two parts both a subjective, personal, internal sense and an objective, outside of us part. They are related but separate. And for Abraham, the key was that he looked beyond himself, despite how he was feeling at any given moment, to God who was and what God was like. And this was what was so important, that Abraham believed God, the text tells us, not in himself, and his faith was in the right object despite his personal feelings about what God could do with a 99-year-old body and a 90-year-old body. Let me give you the, my favorite illustration. If you've caught coffee with me or had lunch with me through the years, I share this with you. It is my absolute favorite because I think it just nails on the head this point about the object of our faith. Imagine three men in the cold wilderness. They're camping and suddenly they find a bear chasing them. They take off to keep their lives, and they come to this river, the bear hot on their heels. 
The river is frozen through, though. The first man looks at the river, examining that, and says, no way, there's no way that this is frozen through. It won't hold us. The second man says, I really don't know if it'll hold us or not, but it's our only way across. The third guy says this, I'm from these parts. It's in early December. It is frozen through and will definitely hold us. Well, despite their varying degrees of certainty in the ice, all three men scurry across the ice to safety. Now I want to ask you, which of those three men were saved? And the answer is all of them. Why? Because what saved them was not the confidence that they had in the ice, but the ice itself. Do you see the difference? you see the difference? Because what saved them was not their own sense of the strength of the ice, but the ice itself. And this is the point that Paul is making. The critical ingredient of saving faith is what you trust in. Listen to what the old theologian B.B. Warfield said. He says this, The saving power of faith resides not in itself, but in the Almighty Savior on whom it rests. It is not, strictly speaking, listen to this, even faith in Christ that saves, but that Christ saves through faith. You hear that? It's not even, strictly speaking, faith in Christ that saves, but that Christ saves through faith. Y'all, I don't know if anything more can set your heart free tonight than this right here. You see why? Because many of us are putting our faith in our own sense of faith and it is killing us. This flies right in the face of a believe in yourself mentality. The Bible over and over again is saying this, never stop, quit believing in yourself. You'll end up miserable. You'll end up feeling like a failure because you need something more sure than your own feelings and good behavior. Because here's why. What happens when that goes? So does your confidence. Instead, I urge you to quit looking at your own sense of faith and look to Jesus. That's why we sing, Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's what we're saying. Look to Jesus. Because why? Listen. A weak faith in the right object is a hundred better than a strong faith in the wrong object. Y'all see what I'm saying? It's all. It's always. This is what Jesus Himself says: a mustard seed size faith. That's all that's required because Jesus is tender with our faith. He knows how to grow it as we walk with Him. You see what I'm saying? Listen to this. I'm telling you. That Christianity is not about having some faith in some vague sense, nor is it about putting faith in yourself. Many of us put faith in our own faith, and when we do, we're always going from spiritual activity to spiritual activity to try to trump up and to try to drum up our feelings so that we can know that God loves us. After all, if our faith is what matters, then this makes sense. Look, do you want our solid rock? a foundation to base your confidence in, then you look to the finished work of Jesus on the cross for you. 
Done. End of story. But if you like the up and down nature of life, wondering if God really loves you, wondering what God thinks of you, then go ahead. Keep looking to your own internal sense of faith. Real growth. Real maturity. And this begins to sound like this. Y'all, I beg you to put this on your tongue and on your lips. Despite how I feel or how I have been doing spiritually lately, I know that I have a Savior who holds me and calls me His own. And when you begin to get that deep down in your bones, your life begins to be changed. I'm telling you, it's life-giving. It's powerful because you quit looking at your dadgum self and you start looking to Jesus. That's exactly what saving faith is all about. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon says it perfectly. My faith does not depend on what I am, on what I will be, or will feel, or will know, but in what Christ is, in what He has done, and in what He is now doing for me. Paul is saying this, that the most important part of faith is what it trusts in. But there is more. Can you believe it? There is more than being saved by what Christ has done for us. Because Paul is going to show us lastly that there's a whole host of blessings that Jesus secures for us. Let's take a look then at this last point. Faith's promise. Faith's promise. Paul is making the point that when God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation, a great people back in Genesis chapter 12, that Abraham believed that God would do it. And so not only was God promising fellowship with God, but Abraham and his family were promised that they would be, look at verse 13 in chapter 4, that they would be heirs of the world. The promise God made to Abraham was that He would use Abraham's family out of all of the families that were on the earth. There was not just one family on the earth at that time. To be the family through which God would work to draw and to rescue God's own people. In other words, Abraham's family was the missional family across the ages to draw every nation to the Messiah, Jesus. And are those that are in that family, who are they? Are they ethnically Jewish? Maybe. Are they spiritually Jewish? Yes. Are they those of faith? Yes. That's exactly what Genesis chapter, I mean, uh, Galatians chapter 3 is all about and what uh, Romans chapter 4 is all about. The promise that came to Abraham, y'all, the promise that comes through Jesus now comes to those who are in Abraham's family, namely you and me, and it is this, that you and I too will inherit the earth one day. That's part of the promise that God extends to us. We not only get fellowship with God, but that, that we will inherit this earth. Now, I know this might sound mind-boggling, but it's one of the things that makes Christianity so utterly unique. You see, many of us think that the Christian story ends like this, that we die, that we exist as disembodied, in this disembodied state, that we're sort of like souls flout, uh, floating in the clouds somewhere, that everyone looks like these 
genderless cherub babies playing hearts. We've sprouted wings. And uh, it really kind of sounds quite boring, if you ask me. I look at that and I go, yeah, big deal. What, what's the point? I mean, that sounds lame. But instead, y'all, I want you to teach. I want you to know that the Bible teaches you that the promise is that for those who are in Christ, that Abraham's true family will inherit the earth utterly remade. Utterly remade. We'll have restored bodies and live in a restored new heavens and new earth. All will be as it should be. Every tear wiped away. Feasting in the house of Zion. No more pain. No more sorrow ever. A pastor friend of mine, Darwin Jordan, tells it like this. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, or if you've ever stood atop of a 14,000 foot mountain and looked around you, if you've ever been to the MoMA in New York City and seen some of the best works of human culture, if you've ever watched Simone Biles do a gymnastics routine, or watched LeBron James playing basketball, if you've ever seen women rescued from sex slavery, or if you've ever watched reconciliation really happen, and if you've ever had a smidgen of Christ's love for you in your heart, if you've ever seen or experienced any of these in this present life, then you have seen and you have experienced the world in a wheelchair. You've seen it handicapped. You've only heard it in audio. And it is like, this is in a wheelchair. And if this is what it's like, if this is what it's like in its wheelchair, what is it going to be like when God says to the entirety of creation, the time it's here, in all of Eve's daughters, have been redeemed by the better Abraham, Jesus, who was faithful to the end. Rise, new creation. Run and leave the wheelchair behind. That is the earth, that is the world that you inherit. It's utterly staggering. I guarantee you, your view of the way that the story ends doesn't look like that. Not if you've grown up in the church in America. Because nobody talks like this. We've lost it. And it's exactly what the Scripture teaches us. We need a recovery of a physical and embodied new creation. That's what Christianity gives you. That's the story that you're caught up in. Y'all listen. Your inheritance is a renewed body in a renewed heavens and a new earth with your Savior forever. That is faith's promise. You're always being shaped by some story. Is it this one? What is your story? What is the thing that you want? What is the thing that you are longing for and you are after? Is it that promise that I've just described to you? Or is it, you know what? Is it just a good looking body? Right? Is that the thing? Well, listen, you're going to die a million deaths over, do you know, if that's your end? If that's the thing that you're hopeful for, you're going to die a million deaths over because you're going to be so disappointed that time and age really is coming. Is it a paycheck? You know what? There will be never enough money to ever make you happy. No amount of acclaim and praise for your accomplishments will ever be sweet enough for you. This story reorients it. Which story have you been caught up in? Is it make a great name for yourself? I just got a question for you. Here we go. 
all of you have had eight, count them, eight great-grandparents. How many of you can name one of them? How many of you can name two of them? I bet you nobody in this room can name eight. They're your family. What makes you think that your family won't forget you? Do you see what I'm getting at? There's something that lasts longer than this. There's something that lasts longer than your name. And that is this promise that God promised to Abraham that he secured through Christ and now that you and me, if we are in him, are beneficiaries of. We need to land the plane. We've seen that faith is the way into our justification, into our righteousness. Through faith in Christ, we have this right standing before God. And as if this weren't enough, we get the whole world too. I want you to see what Abraham saw, that Christ is the real hero, that He was the one who trusted completely at the cost of His life. Christ, the faithful one, was cast off by God so that those who were faithless, you and me, would be welcomed in by God. And because of this God and His grace, He gives us three gifts. We get Christ and we get the whole world. But that's only two. What's the third? Well, in another letter in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And dear ones, do you know this? The it that is referring to points back to faith. So you, not only are you given the milkshake freely, you're given the straw as well. The kindness of God to you tonight is not only that God has given up His Son for you, not only has He given you life in Him forever, but He has given you the faith to actually access it and believe it. All that He requires, He provides. This is God's grace to you. Let's pray.